Can you hear me? Sounds like it. First, I just want to greet you from Bethany Baptist Church. It is um, wonderful to be with you again. I love this congregation. I appreciate how closely you cling to Christ. Um, So it is my joy to be with you this morning. Let's take a minute and pray that God would help us as we consider his word. Father, we give you thanks and we praise you um, that you are the truth and that you have revealed yourself uh, to poor creatures as ourselves. And Lord, I thank you that you sent your son Jesus Christ, and whoever has seen him has seen the Father. And though we cannot see you with our own eyes, we behold you by faith. And God, we pray this morning that you would give light uh, to our darkened minds. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to understand these things and to not just grow in intellect but that your word would transform us from the inside out. So Lord, we pray that what we know not, you would teach us. What we are not, that you would make us. And what we have not, you would please give us. If it be for our good and for your glory. We pray all these things for Christ's sake. Amen. The famous British scholar and writer C.S. Lewis hated the book of Psalms. It bothered Lewis that at so many times the psalmist demanded that the people of God praise him. And not only that, but God demanded that he be praised. Surely you know someone who is constantly needing affirmation of their own virtues and beauties, right? It's, it's, it's rather annoying. Lewis compared it to an old lady who was always begging for a compliment. He got tired of it. He said in a, in a book he wrote, gratitude to God, reverence to Him, I thought I could understand but not perpetual praise. I wonder if this morning you have a similar response as Lewis did. Does it irritate you that God commands us to praise Him? Does God need our praise? Well, as Lewis continued to wrestle with this idea, he came to a wonderful conclusion. Listen to this. He said that praise is the natural response to enjoyment. Praise is the natural response to enjoyment. A newly married couple praises one another for all the things that they love in each other. The superfan praises his team for winning the championship. Tasty food delightful weather, gorgeous flowers, rhythmic music, loud, thunderous fireworks that burst into different colors. 
the world rings with praise. Praising is a part of our very nature. But because of the fall, we don't praise rightly. We don't praise the one who deserves the most praise. But not only do we praise the things that we love, but we try to get others to enjoy those things with us, right? So if you know Clark Kingston, uh, you might develop a love for superheroes, and especially Superman. If you know Laura Brewer, you might start to enjoy gardening and composting. And if you hang out with Harrison Spires, you might start collecting pocket knives, and you, you might start playing disc golf a lot more. We want to share and we want to praise the things that we love. So friend, let me ask you this morning, what do you enjoy? What do you often praise? What comes easily for you to share with others? Thinking about these things might show us what we love. And I think this morning, the psalm that we're going to approach, uh, the psalmist does that. He shares with us what he loves. So if you have a Bible, turn with me now to Psalm 65. Psalm 65, that's the largest book in the Bible. That's located on page 480. If you're using a pew Bible, I would encourage you to grab one and follow along in your own copy. Uh, just a little background on this psalm. This is what they call a harvest hymn. If you're a farmer, raise your hand. We got any farmers here at Burton? No? Only Laura is the only gardener? You? Yes, you have a garden. This is a harvest hymn. This is something that the Israelites would sing and pray uh, once harvest was completed and God had given them an abundance of food um, from their planting. It's a song and a poem meant to be rehearsed after a long season of farming. So if you have Psalm 65 available, let's stand out of the reverence of God's word. Psalm 65. David says this, Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, 
softening it with showers and blessing its groves. You crown the year with your bounty and your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of this wilderness overflow, the hills gird themselves with joy, the meadows clothe themselves with flocks, and the valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. You can be seated. If I could summarize this psalm in one sentence or one phrase, I would summarize it with the last verse in the book of Psalms. Psalm 156. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And if that's too long, we could summarize it with three words. Praise the Lord. Look with me in the text. I say this... um, because it's, it's littered with, with the psalmist praising God for who He is and what He does. Verse 1, praise is due to you. Verse 8, you make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. And then it ends with the very last sentence. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. So clearly the psalmist is in love with God. He sees him for who he is, and his only natural response is to praise him. I want to divide our text this morning into three parts, three headings. First, verses 1 to 4, we praise God as our Redeemer. So Redeemer, that's all you got to remember. Verses 1 to 4. Number two, we praise God as our Creator. Verses 5 to 8. And then lastly, we praise God as our provider. Verses 9 to 13. And and my prayer for for us at Burton Memorial as we study the psalm is that our hearts would be inclined to praise Him. Praise Him who is most worthy of our praise. So let's start with the first part. We praise God as our Redeemer. In verses 1 to 4, we see a comprehensive view of worship. So he starts out with praise in verse 1. He talks about prayer in verse 2. Atonement, verse 3. And then dwelling in the courts of God in verse 4. I think this is pretty logical in its sequence too. The only way we will end up dwelling with God is calling out to Him. We get this wonderful truth about God in verse 2. The psalmist says, O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. Friends, this is a a beautiful truth about the God of Christianity. Is that He does not sit in a cathedral somewhere far off, uh, reigning terror on the people of earth. But in compassion... And mercy, He kneels down to us like a father does to his own son or daughter. And He hears our very complaint. He hears our our hearts being broken. Um, And He runs to us quickly and He listens. He hears us. This is not only a God who hears prayers, but He answers them. I wonder if you have had any prayers answered uh, recently here in this congregation. Um, The Lord 
is someone who hears his people uh, and he answers them at the right time. Friends, let me encourage you, if you are laboring in prayer day in and day out for something that you need, um, but it's not coming, I would encourage you to be like the persistent widow. Do you remember that story in the Gospels? Um, injustice is being done to her and she, and she goes um, to the high official and she begs for justice, but he won't do it at first. Uh, but, but she keeps going to him and basically annoys the tar out of him. And, 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 and the man says, just so that she will leave me alone, I will grant her justice. Friends, that's how we ought to be. We ought to be like that persistent widow begging God to answer us. And friend, and in his good timing, he will. He will. You can trust, you can trust his providence. Oh, you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. So not only is this a God who hears prayers, but verse 3, I have good news for you. The psalmist says, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Friend, what a, what a lovely thought. Maybe if, if you just took five minutes right now and thought about the previous week, going to work, interacting with your wife and husband, interacting with your children, you could find numerous sins. Your sins would prevail against you like a mighty warrior that would take you down. But friends, the good news this morning is that Christ has more mercy for you than that you have sin. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more in the person of Jesus Christ. What a lovely thought that when sin prevails against me, I can go to my great high priest in Christ and be forgiven. He is a God who hears prayers. He is a God who forgives iniquities. But my favorite part in this first section is verse 4. I think that a, a bazillion, gajillion sermons could be preached on this one verse. Look with me in the text. David says, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Friends, friends here is the gospel. Do you remember the story of Mephibosheth in 1st and 2nd Samuel? I, feel, I, I might use this illustration every time I'm at Burton, but I'll just, I'll just keep drilling it. Mephibosheth uh, was a son of King Saul, and King Saul was a wicked man who persecuted King David. But King, uh, King Saul eventually dies, um, and King David takes the throne. And at some point in David's reign, he wants to, to bestow mercy on someone, to show someone love. And he's just sitting in his, in his uh, throne wondering, who can I show mercy to? And he remembers Mephibosheth, Saul's son. And does anybody remember how Mephibosheth is described in the Bible. What is he? He's lame. He's lame in his feet. He cannot be King David's bodyguard. He cannot go plow the fields of King David. Uh, in David's eyes, as far as work goes, he's worthless, right? But David brings Mephibosheth into his courtroom 
at to his table. And he has Mephibosheth eat with him day in and day out. Mephibosheth could not earn himself, could not earn a way to King David. Um, and he had done nothing to earn David's love. In fact, he probably should have been treated as someone um, that had committed high treason because he was part of King Saul's lineage. He was King Saul's son. And friends, in the same way, that's the good news of Jesus Christ, that there, that there is nothing that we could do to win ourselves to him. And I know that you hear that week in and week out. But I think it would be best if we would just sit and marvel at that. That the king would have someone like us at his table. That the king would have someone like us who has murdered his own son with our own sin. But that he would look on us with mercy. Friends, did you notice in the text too, it, the person is blessed because God has chosen him. Not because the man has chosen the Lord, but it, it's the exact opposite. Doesn't Jesus tell the apostles, you did not choose me, but I chose you to follow me. Friends, this is, this is the Lord's um, free mercy and election, where it's not dependent upon man, but upon God who blesses. Friends, have you heard this gospel? And if so, if you've heard it, have you responded? Christ's death does not just throw a big blanket over the earth and just save everyone. Uh, there is an exception to Christ's saving work. And it's only for those who would turn from their sin and put their trust in him. If that's done, then Christ's blood, his perfect sacrifice, is, is accredited to you. And you are gifted with eternal life. There, there's a riddle in the Old Testament. I wonder if you've heard of it. It's found in Exodus 34. Listen to this riddle. It says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. How, how can God show his steadfast love, but at the same time not clear the guilty? Friends, the answer is found in his son, Jesus Christ. It's the Sunday school answer. Jesus is the answer. God is just and the justifier by sending his son to die on a cross, taking on the sins of his people. Jesus fulfills all righteousness and satisfies all of God's wrath by his death on the cross and his resurrection. Hebrews 10.4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But in Christ, it is possible. In Christ, we can draw near to the Lord and sit at his table.
Friends, where do you stand this morning? Are you in Christ or are you in your sin? I heard a good quote the other day. I think it was about Richard Sibbs. He's a dead guy. But he, he said, outside of Christ, God is terrible. He is, a, he is a thing to be feared outside of Christ. I pray that you would put your trust in him this morning and find shelter there. So friends, we can praise God because he has accomplished redemption on our behalf in Christ. But I want you to see secondly that we praise God as our creator. I, I think for 2,000 years, this, this truth that God is our creator has been just taken for granted. All Christians have accepted that, proclaimed that, for, but for the past 150 years, we're, we're running into problems. Instead of Christ and, and the triune God being our creator, um, we have, many have developed a, a theory of, of evolution, a big bang, something happened millions of years ago, and we're just carbon molecules that have slowly evolved, and now we're humans. Friends, that's not the Christian faith. I, I would, would declare that to be wrong and, and completely unbiblical and would challenge anybody who thought that um, to reconsider that position. So in, in order for us to think about that, just, just five things to say about God being our creator. And to go back to the text, just to show you where I get this, look at verse 6. He says, God is the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might. Just a few weeks ago, I went to uh, the Pacific Coast for the first time. I got to go travel to Washington, and I got to see Mount Rainier and Mount Olympic. And, and the crazy thing is, when you stand before a mountain that size, you have a great perspective on how small you are. And, and there's just no way that you can stand before the beautiful creation that those mountains are and not see that there is some grand designer who has pinned those mountains and raised them up and he keeps them there. There's just no way not to see God. But friend, let me, let me offer five thoughts for God being our creator. First of all, number one, the scriptures tell us that the heavens and the earth were made by him. You think about Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you go to the very beginning of John's gospel. He said, in the, in the beginning was him who was with God and was God. And there was not a single thing that was made that was not made by him. All things were created through him. So, if someone in here in the room doesn't believe in the Old Testament scriptures, I would say this. Jesus Christ trusted in the Old Testament scriptures. He constantly says to his listeners, what do the scriptures say? Have you not read? And if he rose from the dead, if he was completely pure and perfect in his heart and in his conduct, and if God raised him from the dead, 
vindicating all of his claims, that means we can trust Jesus. And he trusted the Old Testament scriptures. So I would encourage you to lean on God's word. So first, the scriptures tell us that God created the heavens and the earth and everything created in it. Number two, the world and all of its inhabitants are too beautifully crafted and designed for there not to be an artist behind it. I just mentioned uh, going out west for the first time. Uh, We were walking on the coast and there's beautiful starfish and we saw a cute little sea otter. um, And on these big rocks, there are these clams. You know, like clam chowder. You know what I'm talking about? Can you envision that? So I picked one up and on the clam, it's this perfectly designed like screen protector for an iPhone, but it covers the outside of it and then it goes in and it's a perfect line around its lips. And I'm just thinking, man, not only does God care for us and give us what we need to live, but even the, the, the millions of clams on the coast are created in such a way to survive. And not only the clams too, but think about the ocean. It moves back and forth. It's not a stagnant pool of water that gets real gross and mucky. Uh, But God has designed it in such a way to sustain the creatures that live in it. So the earth is too beautifully crafted. Number three, it takes just as much faith to believe that something like the Big Bang happened millions and millions of years ago as it does to believe that God spoke into existence the heavens and the earth, the animals and humans. Okay, the evolutionists, liberals, whoever claims that, were not there millions and millions of years ago. And we weren't either. But I would argue that we have a more reliable source in the scriptures to tell us what happened so long ago. Number four, this is more logical. If you're you're not as acquainted with scripture, but more logic, life does not come from non-life, right? That makes sense, doesn't it? Material things don't come from immaterial, but God, who is the source of life, breathed into existence the mountains and beautiful rivers and even us too. But number five too, this is interesting. What if I went up to your grandmother and I spit in her face? What do you think you would do to me? Hopefully you would beat me up. And you you would put me, you would set me straight. But friends, if that's all we are is carbon molecules that have evolved millions and millions of years ago, then spitting in your grandmother's face doesn't mean anything, right? She's She's just a carbon molecule, or whatever you want to say. But you all would be so offended because your sweet grandmother has meaning. She is created in the image of God. She has dignity. We all are made in the image of God. We have meaning. So I think that's a, that's a strong argument for, for not just coming from some big bang, but having a creator who loves us. So friends, we worship God because he is our creator. We are made in his image. Um, I read something recently that really uh, put that statement 
into perspective. It helped me understand that the, we are made in his image. Um, you think about a picture that you take or Michelangelo making a sculpture, those things just resemble uh, the image of who they're made of. Um, so in the same way, when God made us, we resemble something of him. Uh, we can rationalize and think. Think about our, our judicial system and our sense of right and wrong. Um, this, this, this tells something of the one who made us. So God as our creator. But notice too in the text, the Lord is not someone who just creates and then sits on the sidelines like a coach. But it says in verse 7, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. So God is not someone who just creates, but he also sustains the earth. He sustains you and me. And friends, as long as we have breath in our lungs, we ought to be praising him. We ought to be enjoying him and singing of his goodness. So friends, do you see the Lord as your creator? I think, I think this is foundational and something that, that, can, that can be given up and still claim Christ. Because if God is our creator, what does that mean? That means that we will give an account to him. At, at the final judgment, when we are raised and we come before the, high, the, the living God, we will give an account to everything that we've ever spoken and thought and done. We, as his creatures, will give an account to the creator. So friends, are you living in fear of him? Are you living in obedience? Do you not know, only know him as your creator, but also as your redeemer? For this is the only way to find life. Hebrews 1.3, the writer says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. So friends, if he upholds the universe by the word of his power continually, I, I just wonder if that puts any perspective on the, on the problems uh, that you're facing right now. Is, is your marriage struggling? Are you, are you having a hard time making financial means uh, come together? Do you have a family member or a loved one who has rejected the Lord after so many attempts to share the gospel with him or her? Friends, if he can, if he can hold Mount Rainier up, if he can keep the ocean going, then, then what are our problems in comparison to that? By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So friends, we worship the Lord as our redeemer. We worship the Lord as our creator. But lastly, I, I want you to see this, that we worship God as our provider. Look with me again in verses 9 to 13. Listen to how abundantly 
God provides for the earth. He says, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water, and you provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. It says in verse 11, you crown the year with your bounty, and your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. I'm afraid, brothers and sisters, that since we have Kroger's, all, we have three Kroger's, I think, here in Bowling Green. We've got a couple of Walmarts. We've got a big Sam's Club where you can buy 100 slices of cheese at one time. Um, we are so well off that I'm afraid that we miss the point uh, that God is the one who gives us our food and our nourishment. Um, my dad is a farmer. He's what I call a hobby farmer. He doesn't depend on it necessarily. He's a coal miner by day, um, but a farmer by night. Um, but, but seeing dad farm has really put into perspective how much we depend on him to provide rain and, and sunshine to grow food. Um, and, I, and I think that's too why Jesus in, in the Lord's prayer, he says, give us this day our daily bread. So in Jesus' day, someone would wake up and they didn't know where their food was going to be. They, they didn't have a subway down the, down the road. But they had to pray and trust that God would provide for their needs. Uh, but in verses 9 to 13, we see that the Lord provides bountifully. The wagon tracks overflow with abundance. I really, I really like this part in this section. Um, Wagon tracks, I compare this to cow tracks at Dad's farm. Um, if you've been around cows, they love to go in a single file line, the path of least resistance. And after they do that for a while, what happens to the grass? It dies. But friends, where the Lord grows, where the Lord goes, where his wagon tracks go, it's not dead grass. But it's, it's an abundance of his spirit and mercy and loving kindness. Friends, I wonder how he, is, he has blessed Burton recently. I mean, I'm looking at the pews, and, it, and it's full. He has, he has provided um, a wonderful congregation here. He has provided wonderful pastors and men who lead um, in the word. I see plenty of godly women here in the pews. Surely you can see God's provision here at Burton Memorial. But notice too, in verse 13, um, the nature, the meadows, the hills, the pastures, as they are um, filled with grain, and girded themselves with joy, it says they shout and sing together for joy. And I think this is this groaning that Paul talks about in Romans 8. Uh, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. They are greatly anticipating Christ to return and to bring his people back. God provides for us abundantly. I love, what, I love what Martin Luther says. We learned from Luther this morning in Sunday school. 
He says this about God. He says, quote, You, O God, are the master cultivator who cultivates the land much more and much better than the farmer does. He does nothing more to it than break up the ground and plow and sow and then lets it lie. But God must always be attending to it with rain and heat and must do everything to make it grow and prosper while the farmer lies at home and sleeps. Right? That's a great quote. And I think that's the same thing for our salvation. God has provided everything that we need in Christ. And he calls us to repent and to believe in his son. How has the Lord provided for you recently? I want to give one more example um, with God's provision. Not only does he provide um, bread for the 5,000 and enough drink for them, but I, I recently read a story about a man named Josiah Henson. Have you ever heard of him, Josiah Henson? It's a little 80-page book, and it's a memoir of him. Um, he was a slave who was born in Maryland, and at some point in his life, he moved to Davis County, Kentucky, which is just 30 minutes north of where I'm from. But you need to go home this, this evening and read this memoir you will not be able to put it down. It is this wonderful account of his life from beginning to end. Uh, and it is a wonderful testimony of God's provision in his life. So just, just a few instances in his life. His earliest memory um, was his father leaving, his father being sold to another family. And then later, um, his, his first slave owner, died and they were being sold one by one all of his brothers and sisters but in God's good providence he fell sick he got so sick that that slave master didn't want to buy him and he the slave master sold him to the same master who bought his mother so there we see God's providence and keeping Josiah with his mother and this is really sad but Josiah, the only Bible that he ever heard of, the only scripture that he ever heard of in his life was his mother reciting the Lord's Prayer over and over and over again. But one day there was a baker. He was a godly man and he was a preacher. And he was in town and his mother said, Josiah, you should go talk to your slave master and see if he will let you go hear him preach. And he does. And the slave master grants him favor to go hear the sermon. And so he gets there just in time. The, the preacher is about to start his sermon on Hebrews 2.9, where it says, uh, by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for everyone. And the preacher is imploring uh, everyone there, even some slaves, that Christ's blood was sufficient for them. Even them, slaves who were seen as nobodies, not even as people, but as objects. And friends, that was the first sermon that he heard at 18 or 19. I mean, he was a young lad, but uh, it was then that he was converted. And, 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 he, and he talks about him coming back to his, his fellow slaves, imploring them to believe on the good news of Jesus Christ. Friends, he had found the one whom his soul had loved. And what was his response? To 
praise him and to tell others of him. So go on Amazon. It's really cheap. It's 80 pages. You can read it in one setting. The, the life of Josiah Henson. I'll write that down and you can read it later. Friends, I started with C.S. Lewis and I'm going to end with him. As he's working through this idea of praising God, he comes to another conclusion, another observation. He says this, I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praise the most, while the cranks and the misfits and the malcontents praised least. The good critics found something to praise in many imperfect works, but the bad ones continually narrowed the list of books we might be allowed to read. The healthy and unaffected man, even if luxuriously brought up and widely experienced in good cookery, could praise a very modest meal. The deceptic and the snob found fault with all. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I'm going to say that again. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Brother and sister, how would you diagnose your soul this morning? Who or what has been receiving your praise as of late? If you think that your heart is out of tune, I have a remedy for you. Go to the Lord Christ. Go to Him for mercy. Have a fresh look at Him. Do that and also go look at a pretty mountain or a pretty stream and you will see the glory of Christ. Lewis goes on to say, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. So this morning, I want to urge you this morning to go to Christ in faith, to believe on him who has shown such perfect love on the cross by dying and by raising to new life. Trust in, in Christ this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we sing of your goodness. We praise you because out of your mouth you spoke into existence what we see. And Lord, we praise you because in Christ you have given us new life. So God, would you remove in us, remove from our lives those things that we praise more than you. Cause us not to praise creation, but to praise you, our creator and our redeemer. Lord, we love you. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.